Father, we come humbly to the throne of grace. No pride, no merit, no boasting, no strutting, no swagger. We come as lowly beggars on our hands and knees. We come as little children with arms raised high. We come as loyal servants longing for entrance. God, we know who you are. And we know who we are. You are the creator. And we are the creation. You are holy. And we are sinners. We were created for your pleasure. May you receive the pleasure you deserve from what takes place this day. May you use our little gathering to encourage the discouraged, to save the lost, to build your church, and to further your gospel. This is our corporate plea. Amen. A man named John began following Jesus Christ around A.D. 30. He left his father's fishing business. He left security, comfort, a steady wage to follow this one claiming to be the Messiah. He witnessed all of Jesus' miracles. He feasted on all of Jesus' teaching. And he was there when they crucified his Lord. He was there when they laid him in the tomb. Jesus told his followers this would happen. This was necessary. This was foreordained. This was needed. This was expected. This was all in the divine plan. John forgot. John's faith began to shake until Jesus came back from the dead. He appeared in his resurrection body to John. That empowered John to live the rest of his days for the glory of this Christ. He did not waver when all the other disciples were martyred for their faith. He did not waver when his brother James was beheaded for following Christ. He did not waver when he was alone, left alone among the original 12. He did not waver when he was arrested for preaching the gospel and sent to first century Alcatraz to work in the rock quarry. It was on this island, this penal settlement, Patmos, that he wrote the book of Revelation. Around 60 years after the resurrected Jesus Christ appeared to John the first time, he appeared to him again the second time. He told John to write seven churches. I want you to write them. I want you to write them everything that you're about to see. Then John was given a glimpse of heaven. He beheld the inestimable beauty and majesty of God the Father on a throne. From the throne came flashes of lightning and, and rumblings and peals of thunder. Around the throne were four living creatures. They are a high-ranking order of angelic beings. Also around the throne are 24 elders, which I argue are a specific rank of angels. You have the throne with all these majestic angelic beings surrounding it. And then the vision focuses in on God the Father holding a scroll. The scroll was sealed with seven seals. A mighty angel asks, who is worthy to open the scroll? The scroll contained God's plan for history. 
God's unfolding redemptive purposes. No one in heaven or on earth was found worthy. John began to weep. The prospect of sin never coming to an end wrecks him. If that scroll is not open, the Bible's promises don't come true and hope is defeated. The scene then shifts to show a lamb standing but with a slit throat. John is told to stop weeping. The lamb is worthy to open the scroll. When we left last week, the lamb had the scroll in his hands and he's about to open it. He's going to slit the seals one by one. The lamb with the slit throat will slit the seals. Here's what we have today. Watching the lamb slit the seven seals. Learning to trust the lamb who slit the seven seals. Watching the lamb slit the seven seals, that's the exposition. Learning to trust the lamb who slit the seven seals, that's the application. The slitting of the seals spans two full chapters and five verses into a third chapter. Chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. We need to take this revelation as a whole, this vision as a whole, if, if we don't want to miss the forest for the trees. The seven seals are one unit, and we will take it as such. Now, some of you horse lovers will love this passage. We start with four colorful horses. But I should warn you, these are not my little ponies. These are not the little toys your daughter has. These are terrible steeds running through the text. On the steeds are four horsemen. If you grew up in a sophisticated, classy home, your father taught you that the four horsemen were Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, Tully Blanchard, and Barry Windham. If you didn't grow up watching wrestling, then that's less I will have to correct as we walk through the text. We are going to be in heavy material until we get to the applications. Prepare yourself. You may be wondering at the end, Kyle, how does this apply? That's good. Because at the end, I will walk through how it applies. But until then, I purposefully want you to feel the weight of this passage. Let's begin by watching the lamb slit the first seal. Verse 1. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come. When Jesus slit the first seal, one of the four angelic creatures roared, Come. That command is not directed to John. It's directed to a horse and rider. Verse 2. And I looked and behold a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. In the really old, the really old John Wayne movies, he rode a, a white horse. But this isn't John Wayne. This rider has a bow, not a gun. A bow was one of the most feared weapons in first century Rome. This rider was given a crown, a sign of victory, and he goes out conquering new frontier after new frontier. He's a mighty warrior and he's starting wars and finishing them. 
watching the lamb slit the second seal. When Jesus opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. The red horse and its rider were sent to take away peace on the earth. Apparently there was some restraining peace and he gets to remove it. The first horse and rider killed people with the bow. This horse and rider merely removed peace and that causes people to slay one another. It allowed people to release their destructive impulses upon each other. Watching the lamb slit the third seal. Verse 5. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be the voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. This black horse and his rider seemed to release famine on the land. A quart of wheat for denarius, that's crazy inflation. That's a day's wage for a small loaf of bread. There must be some type of grain shortage and it's spiking prices. People are having to ration food. They are in a famine. Here's a comparison. You make $50 a day, but a Big Mac costs $75. You make $50 a day, but milk costs $80. What is necessary for minimal living is unavailable. They can't provide for their family. Children with, with bloated bellies. When you have a failure of an economic system, money means nothing. So you start bartering. Watching the lamb slit the fourth seal. Verse 7. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Now notice the measured pace in which Jesus breaks the seals. He breaks one, then comes the rider and the horse. He waits on them before breaking the next. We have a white horse, a red horse, a black horse, and now a pale horse. It's the color of a corpse. It's sickly pale. It's yellowish green. It's the color of yuck. It's the only four horsemen who is named. And his name is not Ric Flair. It's death. And Hades follows him. There's a quartet of ways he can kill. He can kill by sword, famine, pestilence, which could be an outbreak of an infectious disease, wild beasts. Now, let's take a step back. Church, how do we handle these colorful horses and the four horsemen who ride them? I'm not going to needlessly complicate this for you. I've read over 700 pages just for this sermon. I could legit give you three views on every single verse. I've never seen so, so many divergent interpretations among conservative scholars. I'm not going to present all the views. I'm just going to tell you what it means. <laughs> These are not good horses. You don't want to own them. These are steeds wanting to get out of the stall and wreak havoc. They represent unfolding series of disasters. 
This whole scene seems bizarre to us, but the first readers had categories for these horses. They were used to apocalyptic literature using horses as symbols. In fact, we have four horses in the book of Zechariah. The accounts are close, but not exact. What I want to emphasize is that this type of symbolism operated in this type of literature. These four horsemen are being unleashed on the world. Sometimes it's called the tribulation. Some men for whom I have great respect, great respect, believe that the church will be secretly raptured out before this begins. So no need for you to worry about the four horsemen. All I can do is be intellectually honest with the text and I don't see a secret rapture happening to the church before these seals are opened. Some of you do. You must have better investigative skills than I have. But I can't find anything from the book of Revelation that these Christians have been removed. I also find nothing to suggest these events are limited to a seven-year tribulation period. I used to hold to that secret rapture position and and that seven-year tribulation, but I've, as I've expositionally worked through certain books, Daniel and Revelation, I've moved on it. Now, I could give you 15 hours on why I hold this position, but this is not an eschatology class. This is a Sunday morning where the text should be exposited. Allow John to interpret John, beloved. He's been using this phrase, great tribulation, over and over again in the book. God told the church at Philadelphia, because you have kept my commands, I will keep you in the great tribulation. They were living in days of tribulation. John said of himself, I'm in tribulation. This passage may be tough sledding for you, and it's tough sledding for me too, but I see the church facing these four horsemen. Facing the first horse, the war horse. The church will face men and nations who have a lust for war and conquering. The church will face the second horse of slaughter and bloodshed. We already know that some in these seven churches were killed for their faith. Are there not murders in every city, every small town, every jungle village, every desert hideout, bloodshed everywhere? Has our world not known famine after famine after famine? The third horse rode into town. Kester said many cities during this time of the writing endured food crisis. Famines were, were common in the Roman Empire. They had famines behind them and then they will have famines ahead of them. The seven churches receiving this letter were not like, oh, snap, the four horsemen about to ride into town. No, they were like, yep, they've been galloping in our Asian cities for years. Most of the world will go to bed hungry tonight. War and famine are everywhere in the world. The fourth horseman named Death shows you the grisly effects of the first three. He does everything they do and more. Whenever we see war, conquest, famine, and death, we see the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They are not merely a one-time occurrence at the end of human history. This is a tragically average day in human history. We have all known these four horsemen, as have the generations before us. God uses war to teach the church. Wars will always plague the human race. These four horsemen are not a calendar. 
Don't be predicting the Lord's second coming because there's a war with Iraq or a war in Ukraine. There will always be wars and bloodthirsty men and famine-stricken people and infectious diseases. In America, we're so insulated from all this. But it's going on around the world. Everything these four horsemen brought, these seven churches experienced. These horses are always riding. They gallop through the earth to afflict people. The four horsemen leave a trail of death and destruction across the panorama of history. They portray a sad but average day in the world. I've heard people try to figure out how many people will die because of this fourth horse. <laughs> they say there are eight billion people in the world. So a fourth of them will die. That means two billion people will die in this short period of time. And the casket makers will not be able to produce caskets fast enough. Now... You can waste your time trying to figure this all out or you can realize it's apocalyptic literature often using symbolism. Meaning the fourth horse can kill but he has restraints. Well, how do I draw a chart for this, Kyle? It defies charts. Concentrating on the four horsemen too much in detail takes away from the main point. God controls the horses. God's four living creatures around the throne call the horses to gallop on the earth. These horses are subject to God. They gallop because he permits them to gallop. God controls the execution of his wrath. They do nothing outside of the authorization granted by God the Father. See the sovereignty of God even among the activity of the horses. Well, Kyle, why would God do that? Why would he allow the horses? This is his plan for history. It is necessary for his unfolding redemptive purposes. It's necessary for your salvation. Watching the lamb slit the fifth seal, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Now let's pause here. Slitting the first four seals results in action that takes place on earth. Slitting the next seal results in action that takes place in heaven. The vision shifts from earth to heaven. John sees all the martyrs throughout history. John saw the only martyr mentioned in the book of Revelation. He was a member of the church at Pergamos. He was one of the earliest non-disciple martyrs. History tells us that Antipas was put in a brass bowl and slow roasted. He praised God that he was counted worthy to slow roast for Christ. Jesus called him a faithful witness. John saw his brother, James, who was beheaded. Peter, who was crucified upside down. Paul, who was murdered by Nero. John the Baptist, who had his head served on a platter. Stephen, who was stoned to death. James, the half-brother of Jesus. He's in that number. They had been slain for the word of God. Tacitus, the Roman historian and politician who lived during this day, tells of hundreds of Christians fed to beasts, crucified, and burned alive. John sees them all. Verse 10, they cried out. With a loud voice, O oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? 
before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Now I should pause here and tell you that some theological libs have said this is not a holy prayer. How could they pray for vengeance? How could you pray an imprecatory prayer? This is irreconcilable with the prayers of Jesus and Stephen. I wanted to vomit on my study desk as I read that two weeks ago. It's ridiculous. This is a Christian prayer. It's a good and necessary prayer. It's not sheer retribution. It's a plea for holy justice. Besides, these are sinless people. This can't be sin. The martyrs rise from under the altar and they cry for vindication. Without this prayer, evil would reign unchecked in the universe. The reputation of God's justice is at stake. They were right and the persecutors were wrong. How long before you step in and avenge our murders? FFC, read the Bible like you might be martyred for it. I like to preach to you like you're a persecuted church. You ever notice that? Verse 11. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. The martyrs were told to wait a little longer until the other martyrs arrived. John Wycliffe must be burned at the stake. John Huss killed. William Tyndale must be choked to death for translating the Bible into English. Latimer and Ridley must burn. Jim Elliott and Nate Saint must be killed by the Alka Indians in Ecuador. Some from one of the seven churches, the church in Smyrna, must be murdered first. You remember Jesus told them, be faithful unto death. Forty years after they received this letter, the book of Revelation, their pastor Polycarp would stand in the middle of a Roman arena and the governor would call on him, deny Christ and save your life. Polycarp, Polycarp declared, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and savior? The governor said, I have beasts here. Polycarp responded, send for the beasts. Wait a little longer, martyrs. Some among my faith family church in Oak Grove will have the privilege to join you as martyrs. Watching the lamb slit the sixth seal. Verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. I think seals one through five are happening now. I don't think seal six has happened yet. I see this talking about the destruction of the earth. The five previous seals function as a precursor to God's final judgment. The sixth seal describes the day of the Lord mentioned in Isaiah 2 and Joel 2. The ultimate time of outpouring of God's vengeance. This is the final judgment. 
The sun will turn black like ink. The moon will start bleeding. Stars fall out of the sky like figs fall from a tree. God will roll up that sky like he rolled up that scroll. Islands will be removed. John is on the island of Patmos. That island will be no more. Every mountain will be leveled. Some of these seven churches were in mountainous regions. Now all of this, of course, is drawn from the common quarry of apocalyptic literature. There is a regularity of heavenly bodies falling in apocalyptic literature. Cosmic cataclysm frequently describes final judgment in the Old Testament. Now what is all this symbolizing? What is it picturing? This is a complete breakup of landscape. The natural order necessary for life is unraveling. The created order is coming apart at the seams. God himself is ripping apart the fabric of his creation. This is, this is a decreation. A progressive dismantling of creation. When you see the order of creation in Genesis, you have the same order of decreation here. The sun and the moon, then the starry host, then land, then humanity. It follows the same order. Decreation must precede recreation. Verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. <laughs> What's happening here? The creation runs from its creator. Humanity attempts to make a mad dash to escape the judgment of God. Kings and peasants, slaves and slaveholders, wealthy and the poor. Judgment is universal. No one is spared. From every stratum of society, God will judge. Hosea and Isaiah predicted the same event happening exactly like this. Judgment engulfing the whole earth. The end of the world has come. Everything that was supposed to be fixed is loose. Verse 16. These people that are running, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now this is paradoxical. The lamb by nature is gentle and meek, but here he is presented as wrathful. Jesus is merciful, but wrathful. Non-Christians, non-Christians, the ultimate time of the outpouring of the lamb's vengeance is not yet. He's let the horses out, but he hasn't let the sky fall. You don't want to stand in his wrath. Political power will not help you in this day. Wealth will not help you in this day. A large social media following will not help you in this day. A great job will not help you in this day. You will not be able to outrun the judgment of God. Verse 17, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? A day of wrath is coming. It will be worse than 9-11, worse than D-Day. And the only ones who will be saved from the wrath of the Lamb are those who find themselves washed in the blood of the Lamb. Repent and believe before it's too late. Interlude. 
What, what is an interlude? It's something you probably need right now with this long sermon. <laughs> what is an interlude? It's a performance between two major parts of a play. It fills the time between two events. In our, in our case, between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. We have here an interlude. The interlude was meant to comfort the church. The interlude is like a big hug. It covers all of chapter 7. This is a flashback. Chapter 7 happens before the sixth seal. Chapter 7 happens before the sixth seal. And I know this because a mighty angel says, Don't harm the earth or trees. And the earth and the trees were just destroyed in the sixth seal. Look at that in verse 1 of chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. See, this is why I believe this is a flashback. The, the four winds here are the four horses in Zechariah. John is mixing metaphors. Zechariah 6, the four winds are the four horsemen. You be good Bereans and go home and check me out. Chapter 7 happens even before seal 6. Chapter 7 happens before the first seal. The four winds as destructive agents of God are common in apocalyptic literature. By the way, the Bible is not saying the earth is flat and has four corners. This is symbolic. Destruction will come from every direction. The four horsemen will come from every direction. The, the four winds from every direction. These angels who have the power to release the horses, power to hold back the wind, are metaphorically holding back God's judgment. They are told in verse 3, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed, mark this word, servants of our God on their foreheads. This isn't a great translation. A better word is slaves. Slaves had marks of ownership on them. Branding. God said, I seal my slaves. I brand my slaves. God puts his stamp of ownership on people before the earth was harmed. Before the hor horses are released. Before the winds start blowing. We continue continually have this play on the scroll. The scroll isn't the only thing that is sealed. I have people that are sealed, saved, reserved for me. A seal, a seal authenticates. A seal secures. It's a spiritual mark, if you're wondering. It's not a tattoo. It's not something visible on your forehead. You see the background for this in Ezekiel chapter 9. The seal will protect God's children through the onslaught of the horses, the tribulation. Who does God seal? Verse 4. I heard the number of the sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. The text then goes on to list 12,000 from each tribe. Now, John MacArthur and Stephen Davey believe this number represents 144,000 Jewish evangelists during the tribulation period. I don't hold to that. Uh, the Jehovah Witnesses, the J-Dubs, they, they say they are the 144 Jehovah Witnesses, the 144,000 Jehovah Witnesses. I do not believe this is talking about a literal 144,000. I see this as a symbolic number of completeness. 
Twelve and its multiples are used throughout the book to represent the entire community of the redeemed. I agree with Alistair Begg, Kevin DeYoung, Tom Schreiner, D.A. Carson, G.K. Bill, Mounts, James Hamilton, Dennis Johnson, Osborne. I could go on. Twelve times twelve times a thousand complete people of God. God has established the number of the elect, the sealed. A definite total known only by God. You say, yes, Kyle, but it says it's Jews, sons of Israel. How could it include us Gentiles? This is listed like a military census. You find another one in Numbers chapter 1. This is God's messianic army called to conquer, not by killing, but by suffering like the lamb. This is clearly a symbolic number. Later in Revelation, it says that the 144,000 are all males and all virgins. It's speaking of their holiness. In addition, this is not the correct list of tribes. It's adapted to show you it's different. The phrase servants of our God, which I argue should be slaves of our God, is a phrase that John uses over and over to refer to all of God's people without ethnic distinction. The church's Israel come to fruition. This isn't physical Israel, but spiritual Israel. There is no Jew or Gentile in Christ. They aren't making that distinction anymore. They are not distinguished from each other anywhere in the book of Revelation. This is a symbolic way of expressing that the church is the eschatological people of God. Now, some good brothers will tell you that we, the Gentiles, are a parenthesis in God's plan. We're a parenthesis in God's plan. I've read the strongest proponents of this position and I find the arguments fall flat. We are not a parenthesis. We are the program of God. Now, let's read of this second vision in the interlude, verse 9. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. John hears there are 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. Then when he turns, he sees an innumerable multitude from all nations. This is just like in chapter 5 when John heard of a lion and then he turned and he looked and he saw a lamb. Same pattern. Same group. Vision number one is the church on earth. Vision number two is the church in heaven. In the first vision, the people of God are safe on earth, sealed. In the second vision, the people of God are safe in heaven. We have the church secured on earth and the redeemed triumphant in heaven. This huge crowd, too big to count, have palm branches in their hands. <laughs> palm branches are like party balloons. This is a celebration. When Jesus walked into Jerusalem 60 years ago at the time of this writing, they waved palm branches. The text says, from all nations, the gospel will be heard and believed among all peoples of the earth. Every nation, tribe, and tongue, and language are celebrating. A lot of Africans, and a lot of Arabs, and a lot of Filipinos, and a lot of Eastern Europeans. Verse 10, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders. 
See, this is another reason why I say the 24 elders are angels because these are the redeemed here and the elders are beside the redeemed worshiping. Plus, you have one of the 24 elders asking John who the redeemed are. If you're the same people, you'd know one another. Verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? How would you answer an angel if an angel asked you a question? Well, you answer it like John. I said to him, sir, you know. <laughs> and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This multitude from all nations and tribes, they are cleansed and clothed. Cleansed by the blood of Christ and clothed with his righteousness. They make it because they are sealed. Verse 16, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now this is quite a paradox, a reverse Usually people are shepherds. Now the lamb is the shepherd. He will wipe every last tear from their eye. Every tear of suffering. He will wipe away every emotional scar. There will be no cancer cells. And they will never experience famine again. They shall never hunger. He gives them an endless supply of food. Now, it's not like the buffet line where, where you go through and before you get there, somebody else comes and gets all the good stuff. You're, you're, not, you're not going to be in heaven thinking, man, all these people got here before me and they took the crab legs. I wish I would have died in the Middle Ages. No. Endless supply of food. Vision one, the church on earth. Vision two, the church in heaven. This is not what you expected on Easter and I love it. I love it. Watching the lamb slit the seventh seal. Now you might think the seventh seal would reveal the new heaven and the new earth. That doesn't happen. Chapter 8, verse 1. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. In other words, heaven gasped. Silent. The millions of redeemed stopped singing. The angels stop praising. The flashes of lightning and rumblings of thunder cease. Heaven holds its breath with intensity. It's an unexpected hush awaiting the action of God. Verse 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar, altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer for the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Now let's pause here. This is like a... This is like a tabernacle scene in heaven. Priests in the tabernacle would offer incense at the same time that the sacrifices were made. And they, they, would, they would do it on a different altar. The, the meeting of the incense and the hot coals produce a fragrant aroma cloud that wafts upward. And notice what happens when the prayers of the saints reach God. Verse 4. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer. Let me just pause in the middle of this verse. Mark Dever, 
believes verse 5 is a summary of the sixth seal. And I think I, I, think I agree with him here. Verse 5. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning. Now, peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, all of that was going on around the throne before the silence happened. Now an angel, D.A. Carson thinks it's Christ, now an angel throws it on the earth. Peterson calls this reverse thunder. Prayers entered heaven before the throne and now they shoot back down into earth. Re-enter history with incalculable effects. FFC. The Lamb has now taken the scroll and removed the seven seals. Watching the Lamb slit the seven seals, that's the exposition. It's finished. Learning to trust the Lamb who slit the seven seals, that's the application. If you're going to trust the Lamb who slit the seven seals, you're going to need to learn certain lessons. In fact, it's four of them. Lesson number one. God hears your prayers. God hears your prayers. Do not miss the connection between the prayers of God's people in chapter 8 verse 3 and the answer in chapter 8 verse 5. The prayers of the saints go up and the judgment of God comes down. It's God's response to their cry. We have in this text an explanation of what has happened to the millions upon millions of prayers over the last 2,000 years as Christians have cried out again and again, Thy kingdom come! Thy kingdom come! Thy kingdom come! Not one of those prayers have been ignored. Not one has been lost or forgotten. Not one has been ineffectual or pointless. Thy kingdom come! God says, yes. And he decreates before he recreates his new earthly kingdom. God listens. God listens. He can hear clumsy speech. He can decipher garbled words. To God, your prayers do not smell like skunk. They smell like a sweet aroma. Kyle. Why should I pray if God is sovereign? Why should you pray? If your Calvinism has you asking that question, then your brand of Calvinism is not what's found in the Bible. The hands that fold in prayer move the hands that control the world. What do we have in the text? All these hands folded in prayer. What happens at the end? The hand that controls the world moves. We need encouragement to keep praying. And the Lamb is giving it to us in this passage. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two. God will avenge the wrongs done to you. God will avenge the wrongs done to you. Chapter 6, verse 10, the martyrs asked, How long before you will avenge us? In the next verse, they heard this. Just a little while. 
Our plea of how long is answered. Just a little longer. At the cry of his people, God will avenge. Friend, I don't know what happened to you. I do not know the emotional scars that you carry. You are not immune from the four horsemen. Injustice and pain are part of a fallen world. But leave vengeance in the hands of God. I know here you have tears. But there they will be wiped. God is not indifferent to the pain you faced. The wrongs you've endured. God will bring those persons to justice. It's lesson number two. Lesson number three. Don't blush about the judgment of God. This is more like a plea. Don't blush about the judgment of God. In the sixth seal, we beheld a coming terror of God's judgment in graphic terms. The Bible presents the judgment of God without the slightest blush. And you should too. Do you really believe God will judge people? Yes. Let me back that up. Yes. No blush, college student. No blush, stay-at-home mother. Death will overtake wicked humanity and they will not escape the judgment of God. Oh, Kyle. I mean, you know I'm a happy person. Um, I like to talk about Jesus and the Lamb and His love. I just don't know about talking about the Lamb and His wrath. I mean, really, Kyle, let's think about this. Is He going to pour out final judgment on all people who do not believe in Him? who do not submit to his lordship? You think that's really going to happen, Kyle? <laughs> well, I know what you're doing. I see. You think you're more compassionate than God. You are not. The problem is we're not righteous enough. We're not holy enough to appreciate the judgment of God. God's judgment ought never to be a cause of shame, but rather fuel for praise. Fuel for praise. Lesson number four. This is my favorite one. This is the one that rocked me two weeks ago when I was studying for it. God has sealed you. That means you're going to make it. The word sealed in the text, it's, it's perfect tense, meaning a past action with ongoing results. Past action with ongoing results, perfect tense. It doesn't protect them from death. It doesn't protect them from pain. It protects them from failing to make it. You are preserved no matter what the tribulation the divine seal empowers the saints to remain loyal to Christ and not to compromise in the midst of pressures. God is saying, God is saying, you're going to go through all of this, the first four seals, but I'm going to keep you. 
No matter how bad it gets, you will not suffer one molecule more than God desires for you to suffer. Unbelief will not swamp your ship. He will not allow it. Christians will be preserved by God. The outcome is sure. Hear me, church family. The outcome is sure. So the believer is given a basis for full assurance of salvation. Preach to yourself. God has sealed me. God will sustain me. Let's stand and pray together. Father, what a text. What a scroll. What a seal. What a lamb. What an assurance. Thank you for giving us this good, hard text. It's exactly what we needed. Amen.